So uh, back in 1787, uh, there's this group of people in Pennsylvania who um, they had a big question. The big question was, what do, you do, what do we do with criminals? Because one of the things that happened is, is that when there were violent criminals back in that time in the United States, if they were violent criminals, they were often just punished. They were either whipped or they were hanged. And this group of people were religious. They were Quakers. And, and they tried to find a more humane way than just punishment. They wanted to find a, a better way to deal with criminals. We wanted, they wanted to find a way that where criminals weren't just punished, they were rehabilitated. And, and so they had the solution they proposed. And the solution was, I'd never heard of before. I mean, I guess you might have thought of it, but they implemented this idea of solitary confinement, which really hadn't been ever tried before. Um, there's a man, he's a clinical psychologist who specializes in the effects of solitary confinement. His name is Stuart Grashen. He said this, he, he described it, he said, why they do this? He said, there was a belief that you could put a person in a solitary cell far from the influences of evil society and they'd become like a monk in a monastic cell, that they'd be free to come close to God and come close to themselves and that they, because of that, they'd naturally heal from all the evils out, of outside society, which again, great idea. There's a, get, give some solitude. No bad influences. You just get to find God and find yourself. And he goes on to say, it was a noble experiment that was an absolute catastrophe. Because almost immediately they found out that isolation didn't free people, it crushed them. That these criminals who were placed in isolation, they were almost immediately damaged physically. They were damaged mentally. And sometimes that damage was completely irreparable. In fact, only 40 years after this, Alexis de Tocqueville, who came from France, right, to study the great American experiment, he saw this solitary experiment in solitary confinement and he reported on it. His words were, he said, nowhere was this system of imprisonment crowned with the hoped for success. It says in general, it was ruinous to the public treasury, like cost a lot. It never also affected the reformation of prisoners, going on to say, in order to reform them, they had been submitted to complete isolation but this absolute solitude, if nothing interrupts it, is beyond the strength of man. It destroys the criminal without intermission and without pity. It does not reform, it kills. And that's, there's even a case I read of a man uh, named James Medley back in the day, same time period, who had been found guilty of killing his own wife and sentenced to death, but before he was on the gallows, they also sentenced him to 45 days of solitary confinement. And that 40, those 45 days so broke this human being that his case was sent to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically, essentially, kind of in other words, found that he had already paid his debt. In fact, um, he was so thoroughly destroyed as a human being that he was released and he went through no further punishment. That 45 days, essentially, according to the courts, 45 days of solitary confinement was worse than putting him to death. It turns out that, that isolation, especially forced isolation, is more deadly than smoking. Isolation is more deadly than cancer, more deadly than heart disease. It's more deadly than obesity. And, and, and well, there's a bunch of studies on this. Some people want to say that. They could say, well, are there any studies? And it reminds me of like a, a post I saw a couple years back. It, it talked about how um, in nutrition, it was a nutrition post, and it said how a human being can live off of nothing more than a potato or potatoes and like some milk every day, and they live their entire lives off of that. And after that post, someone said, do you have any sources, any studies you can cite. And so I responded under that with two words, um, 
Ireland? And I was like, yes, that's exactly it. It's this, that's what happens. So I can make the case. Um, isolation is worse than obesity and worse than cancer and worse than smoking, worse than heart disease. You say, are there any studies? Well, A, yes, there are studies, but we can just look and say uh, two words, um, COVID, because we know that the cost of COVID has, wasn't just the virus, right? The cost we got to experience what forced isolation and some, some small dose can do and what, what it can do to all of us. Again, we spent much, much of the last two years in isolation. And, this, and again, my bringing this up is not to be a critique of isolation or not isolation. It's Because I, I always ask the question, what would I have done? And I, the question is, the answer is, don't know. I have no idea what I would have done if I was in charge. I bring it up merely to highlight something that having lived through isolation, we cannot afford to forget. And hopefully, we, in living through isolation, most of us, almost all of us, we learn something that we can never actually afford to forget. And what we can never afford to forget is this. We need each other. In fact, um, I remember reading about this in an article years ago. Uh, maybe it was 2019. It was about the epidemic of loneliness in the lives of middle-aged men. It was, it was this article that was documenting the, the epidemic of, of friendlessness among middle-aged men in America. And even guys who, like, they have coworkers, they have buddies, they have even family but they were interiorly devastated by a lack of closeness, by a lack of friendship, by an abundance of loneliness. And that was only 2019. It turns out we actually had read about this all along. That roughly 4,000 years ago or so, um, we read this, that there's this book. And in the first book, in the first chapters of the first book of the Bible, what's it say? It says, the first chapter says that here's God who says, let's make man in our image in our image and likeness. So you can pause on that for a second and say, wait, what's that mean? What's that, what's that look like? It doesn't mean that God looks like us. To be made in God's image and likeness means that here's God who can think. He made us to be able to think. We have an intellect. Here's God who, who, who can will. He can choose. He gave us the ability to choose freely. Here's God who creates and he made us with the ability to create. So here we are made in God's image and likeness. But then that's Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2, God then says this phrase that is so powerful and so necessary for us to understand. He says, it is not good for the man to be alone. If we think about this, here's Adam. He's in the Garden of Eden. Not good for the man to be alone. Realize that God is saying this about Adam before the fall. Which means that Adam was alone, but he wasn't lonely. I mean, think about this. Adam had everything he possibly needed. He had work. He had, um, he had downtime. He had purpose. He had a dog. Well, he was going to get a dog later on. But like, we realize that here is God who made Adam with an intellect. Well, he was, his, intellect, his, intellect, his intellect was challenged. Here's God who made Adam uh, with a will. Well, he had to do meaningful and purposeful work. Here's God who made Adam to be able to create. And what did he do? He got to be able to, in this, in this garden, and was able to cultivate and care for the garden. Adam was perfectly content in himself. Adam seemed like he lacked nothing. Adam is not lonely. So question, what is he missing? The answer is in today's solemnity. The answer is in the solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. As I mentioned at the beginning of Mass, the Catechism says this. The Catechism says, the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. Basically, every other mystery, every doctrine that we have flows from this mystery today that God is one God and three divine persons. And because why? Because the mystery of the Holy Trinity is the mystery of who and what God is in himself. Now, virtually every other mystery, every other doctrine we have is who God is for us. 
or what God has done for us. Those are all good. Those are all super important. But today's solemnity, today's mystery we highlight and just steep in is all about who and what God is in himself. You know, when we talk about, I mean, we actually say it every Sunday, right? In the creed. What do we say? We say, I believe in one God. So we know that God is one. You ever talk to non-Christians, especially Muslims, one of their critiques, one of their misunderstandings of Christianity is they think, well, you believe in multiple gods. I'm like, no, the answer is this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Goes on to say, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who's also what? God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So here's the Father, here's the Son, who are co-equal, co-eternal, not the same in person, but the same in substance. That's why we say consubstantial with the Father. I mean, and then the Holy Spirit, who's also fully God. And so one way to kind of explain this is, here's the Father, who is God. Here's the Son, who is God. Here is the Holy Spirit, who is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Now, <laughs> okay, I realize you might have a headache. And in fact, I, the last week, I had came across multiple people who used the phrase word salad. And I thought, that is appropriate because word salad was, they were going on explaining some technical things and they said, I'm afraid that I'm just offering a word salad, which means I understand that the language you're speaking right now is English and I should be able to understand it, but it's just a jumble. To be able to say that here is God who's one divine being, but three divine persons, again, gives us a headache, which um, if, if that's the case, you're not alone. Back in the fourth century, there was Augustine. His, he was a he was a non-Christian who became a Catholic. And at one point, he was the Bishop of Hippo and the, uh, the coast, coast of North Africa. And he was trying to figure out, trying to dive deeply into the mystery of the Trinity. And he was pondering, how is it possible that God is one divine per- being and three divine persons? And so he took a break, which is always a good idea. Whenever you're overwhelmed, just he went for a walk. And he went for a walk on the beach, right, on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And the story goes that as he's walking along the beach, he sees this boy. And this boy has like a bowl of some kind. And he's dug a hole in the sand and he goes over to the, the Mediterranean Sea and he fills it up with water and rushes over to his bowl or to the, to the hole and he pours the water into the hole. Goes back to the sea, fills it up, pours the water into the hole. And Augustine just kind of taking it in, watches him for a while. And finally he says, what are you trying, what are you doing? And the boy says, well, I'm emptying the sea into this hole that I dug. And Augustine kind of like, cantank- like any cantankerous old bishop, <laughs> He laughs and says, you know, a silly rabbit. He says, silly kid, you couldn't possibly empty this entire sea into this small hole that you've dug. And apparently the story goes that at that moment, the boy stopped and looked at Augustine and he said, and neither could you possibly hope to fit the infinite and unfathomable God into your finite and limited mind. And with that, like disappeared. And so one of those kind of things is like, okay, so here's the mystery of the Trinity. How do we understand it? One divine being, three divine persons. One way is just by, able to, by being able to say, God is one what and three who's. That, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal, they're co-eternal, they're unmixed, but they're distinct. You know, there's even uh, hints of this reality in the first book, in the first chapter, the first line of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. First line of the, of the whole Bible says, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, so here's God the Father, then it says that the wind, a mighty wind swept over the waters. Here's the Holy Spirit. And then God spoke and said, let there be light. And there's the word, right? So you have the Father, who's the creator. You have the Holy Spirit, that wind. And you have the Son, who's the word spoken. So even hints, even in the first line of the first book of the entire Bible, 
that God is more mysterious and more deep than we ever could possibly imagine. But it's not, no one could ever say, well, that's the Trinity right there, until Jesus. Because yes, you could talk about the Father as an analogy at some point, but Jesus reveals that he is fully God. In fact, John in his gospel, the opening words of John's gospel are an echo of the first words of Genesis, where John says, in the beginning, just like Genesis says, but he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, so distinct, and the Word was God, so equal. And later on says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus reveals something we never knew about God. Jesus reveals that he was the Son from all eternity, which means that God the Father was the Father from all eternity, which means the Holy Spirit, the love between them, has been the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit from all eternity. And it's so powerful. I love this. The Catechism is one of my favorite phrases. The Catechism says that Jesus reveals the innermost secret of God. And whenever I bring that up, I always say, like, wouldn't you want to know the innermost secret of God? Because it's a big deal. And the Catechism then says that God himself is an eternal exchange of love. Which at first when I heard it, I'm like, wah, wah. Like everyone knows that, right? Because if there's anything people know, even not religious people, not even Christians, they say, no, one thing I know about God is God is love. Here's the crazy thing. We can't know that without Jesus. Why? Because we're not saying God does love or God loves. We're saying God is love. And if God is monolithic, right? If God is just one divine being and one divine person, he couldn't be love. Love could be something he did, but only if God is a communion of persons, one divine being, one what, and three who's, can he be actually love. You can't say God is love without simultaneously acknowledging that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is fully God as well. So, the Trinity, God is love. And, and in whose image and likeness have you been made? Here's Adam in Genesis chapter 2. He's content in himself, and yet he's not able to be himself. So what does God do? God puts the man into a deep sleep, opens up his side, takes out the rib, and forms it into a woman. Now here's the <laughs> incredible thing. When God put man into a, Adam into a deep sleep, that word in, in Greek is the word ecstasis, the word ecstasy. And what the word ecstasis means is it means to be taken out of yourself. So here is Adam. He's content in himself. But God's like, yeah, but you're not meant to be content in yourself. Why? Because you're made in my image and likeness. But what am I? God himself is love, which means that the innermost secret of man is also to be love, to be taken out of himself. Because the reality for you and for me is that you're made for love. You're made to go out of yourself. You're made to be a gift. In fact, you're made to be love. Jump up the second. He said it like this. He said, man cannot live without love. Without love, he remains a being incomprehensible to himself. His life remains senseless unless he encounters love, unless he receives love, and unless he makes a gift of himself in love. And I'm not just talking about romantic love. Any way to go out of yourself, any way to be a gift, any way to be a love, to be love matters. In fact, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this, but I'm going to share this. Okay, so recently I heard a commencement speech from uh, a man that I respect and admire a lot. He's a clinical psychologist out of Canada who also is an author and a speaker. And he was giving this commencement address. And in the course of his commencement address, he started talking about one of his former patients. And he described her in some of the most painstaking ways. He, he said this woman um, had suffered a lot her entire life. He said that she dressed like a homeless person. She had this baggy, oversized, dirty winter coat. And 
she was very short and he said she was, just describing her, he said she was very unattractive. Very few people wanted to talk with her. When she, when she approached people, she'd like shield her eyes as if they were giving off some kind of light because she was just so, so meek and so timid. He said she was also very objectively unintelligent. She was in the low 10%, the lowest 10% of when it comes to intelligence, could barely read, could barely function. She had a known pain of her life. Her mom was, was critically ill. Her stepfather was an abusive and violent alcoholic, schizophrenic. And she had been a patient, an inpatient, at this hospital that he, where he worked. He described the hospital in, in these terms. He said it was during that time of institutionalization in North America where the people that were left in the institutions were among, as he described, the most miserable of the most miserable. People who couldn't function outside in the real world. He said he once took his brother through this, through this hospital and his brother described it like the, one of the circles of Dante's hell. He said his brother was traumatized. He had no exposure to this. He had no familiarity with this. It was so broken, so bad. This woman had been an inpatient there and then she was out, she got, got out and at one point she got a little dog and she started taking care of this dog and going for walks with it. And she approached the administration of this hospital because she wanted to know if they had anyone who was worse off than her that she could just meet up with and just take them for a walk every day with her dog. You think, here's someone who has nothing to offer. Like, I mean, no status, he says. She has no influence, she has no intent. She has nothing to give. But her goal, I just want to find someone who has less than me. I don't want to serve them. I want to find someone who has less than me. I want to give. I want to find someone who has, has less than me. I just want to be love for them. Because it, this is the last thing. We need each other. The Trinity reveals the innermost secret of God. He is love. But the Trinity also reveals the innermost secret of you and of me. And that we're made for love. And that we need each other. And we need each other not just to keep us sane and healthy, but we actually need each other to be ourselves. We need each other to be able to be who we're created to be, to be a gift, to be love to each other. So the question this week is, is this, where will I be the person I've been created to be today? Like where will I be a gift? Where am I gonna pour out my time? Where am I gonna pour out my energy? Where are you gonna pour out your attention? Where will you meet a person in their isolation and their loneliness? Be a gift for them. Where will you find someone in their desperation who needs love? And where will you be love?